Welcome to Tempest, a history podcast. I'm Matt Smith. If you leave Melbourne City and head about 20 minutes north, you could find yourself in the suburb of Coburg, on the top of a hill next to a large blue stone wall with towers on the side. This is Pentridge Prison. It was built in the 1850s and was quote-unquote affectionately referred to as the Bluestone College. It officially closed in 1997 and is now being slowly turned into slightly creepy residential places. From the safety of the streets it's hard to get a handle of what the prisoners on the inside experienced. But once you get beyond the gates it becomes clear that they had a pretty harsh life. That even by prison standards, these guys had it rough. Master? Yeah. How, how are you? Good, how are you? Very good. My guide around Pentridge Prison is site archaeologist Adam Ford. And for those who watch ABC television, he's also the host of Who's Been Sleeping in My House. As you walk in, you can, you can see a recent accretion is this mirror which was set up so when uh, delivery vans or laundry vans were leaving, the guards could just look up and see if any, uh, any of the inmates were sprawled hanging onto the, uh, the roof of the, uh, of the truck. And you can imagine them saying, not today, Charlie, you know. Did they ever see anyone? I guess they would have done. I mean, it's obviously a need, and they probably would have had a little mirror on a stick underneath the vehicle as well. There's always a problem with contraband, never mind people escaping. So yeah. things being smuggled out and things being smuggled in was, was always an issue. Pentridge Prison looks like a medieval castle. There's a series of walls, there's heavy gates, it's made out of thick bluestone. It looks like it could repel a barbarian horde whenever it's needed. And while in suburban Melbourne it might look a bit out of place, in its time, this design was carefully planned to not just contain the prisoners within, but to serve as a warning to everyone else. When Pentridge was built in 1858 to 1859, there were no other structures around this area apart from the churches down on, on Sydney Road. So you would have been able to see this monstrous bluestone castle for miles and miles around. And so that was, there was two reasons. One, to scare the hell out of the the community around saying, if you didn't follow those churches, you'd be ending up in the big blue house. There's quite a powerful emotion. It's, you don't go past it and ignore it. You go past and think, thank God I've never been in there as an inmate. In the wake of Victoria's gold rush, Melbourne found itself with a number of social problems, of alcoholism, of drug abuse, of prostitution, of destitution. The task of establishing a new penitentiary fell to the Inspector General of Penal Establishments in Victoria, at the time William Champ. Old Melbourne Jail, which was built in the 1840s, was woefully inadequate. The hulks that were sitting off Williamstown Bay there were completely unfit for use. And so Champ was given the task of building a new model prison, a prison for the new society, the new colony of Victoria. He really brought in some um, cutting-edge penological designs and regimes which are still exhibited in the structures and the archaeology. It's a really fascinating kind of mirror up to society at the time of what at that point was a real enlightenment in the way they dealt in crime and punishment and signified a shift that had been going since the early 1800s from punishment, the medieval punishment, to the possibility of reform and releasing people back into the community. The word penitentiary comes from a Latin word which basically meant to repent, which kind of gives you a bit of an idea about where they're going with this rehabilitation. General society, and they thought, well, monks are pretty good people. They're nice. Maybe we can reform these criminals by adopting a monastic lifestyle. 
The separate system didn't mess around. The idea here is to strip away your name, your identity, give you a number, and then they lock you up. And you're left alone there without anyone to talk to, or really much to do, and to have a good long think about what you've done. This is the kind of thing that they've done at Pentridge Prison, and you can really see that once you get into it's B nice Division. Have buildings that have their build dates on them, it makes it easier for us. So. B Division 1859. <laughs> 1859. That, that was an easy dig. Yeah, exactly. This is just very imposing to walk into. We're going through these very heavy um, studded doors into what it was, would have been the uh, officers' quarters. It was officers' quarters, but also one of these rooms. I haven't quite worked out which one was also known as the flagellation room where people were um, given the cat and nine tails for a, a whole variety of misdemeanors or transgressions of the, the strict regime. A prisoner was led past these rooms, taken down a hall and then locked up for 23 hours a day. These structures are foreboding, you know that if you go into there, you've made a wrong turn somewhere along your life. But at the same time, there's a strange element of artistry to the design. The people that built Pentridge Prison really cared about making a structure that looked good. Even if the prisoners there aren't going to be able to appreciate it. The ironwork, the timber roof, we're looking up at this cupola that's um, above the central hub of B Division, which is basically in a T-shape with an east wing, a south wing and a, and a west wing. And each of these wings have uh, two stories of cell blocks. Actually, the east wing has three stories of cell blocks. And in 1859, the cells were designed for one person occupation only. And remarkably, each cell had a flushing toilet and a sink because they wanted them to stay in their cells for 23 hours a day. They didn't want this opportunity to come out and go to the loo or interact with each other. To enforce the solitary nature of this punishment, whenever a prisoner got to leave their cell, whether it be for an hour every day to get some fresh air, or once a week when they had the chance to have a shower and a shave, they had to wear a black cowl, like a hood, over their head, with the eye holes cut out. So all that they could see was right in front of them, and they couldn't interact with any of the guards or the prisoners. This isolation is the most important part of the separate system and the psychology behind it sends a clear message to the prisoner, as does every element in the design of Pentridge Prison. I mean, the psychology of the whole thing is the importance and it's the reason why these buildings are built as they are. I mean, of course they're built to stop people from escaping, but that, that can be easily done in another way. But the fact that this was built in a way that, one, it made it very efficient for the warders to see down these three wings at any one time, but it was also there to break the inmate very rapidly. So this separate system was used for everyone who came to Pentridge, no matter what their crime was. So the young Ned Kelly in 1770, for instance, would, was sent to Pentridge for misdemeanors for being a rat bag, basically, as a 16-year-old. He was sent away for three years. So he spent three months in B Division here, in solitary confinement. So everyone spent a month for every year they were put away in B Division or A Division. And it was this short, sharp shock, I guess, or not so short in some people's cases, to really bring them into themselves. So let's focus now on the one hour a day. You're a prisoner in your cell and your door opens. A cowl is put over your head and you'll march down the corridor. You can't see anyone else, but it's probably a direction that they know quite well. That one hour a day is spent outside in the elements, in what's called the airing yards. 
At Pentridge Prison, there are three of them being excavated, and their design is like nothing else you've ever seen. We come out into this enclosed courtyard and heading towards this remarkable structure, the foundations of the exercise yard. Wow, that's amazing. That's so well preserved as well. Yeah, it's fantastic, isn't it? And in front of you, what you see here is the massive stone foundations of these remarkable structures, these panopticon exercise yards or airing yards. There's three that we've identified and are excavating at the present in Pentridge. These are very rare structures internationally. Okay, so explain the structure to me, because from what I'm looking at here, it, it looks like a, a trivial pursuit token. Yeah, exactly. The best way to... It has been described as that. So what we have here, Matt, in plan, it looks like a cartwheel. In the center of this cartwheel, in the hub of the, of the wheel, is the circular foundation for a tower. A tower would have stood two to three times high as a person in the middle, and on these radiating big stone foundations that radiate from the center of the tower to the outside, forming the spokes of the wheel, there would have been uh, large walls separating these little triangular exercise yards. There's 16 exercise yards around this tower. And then the outside, the perimeter wall, would have been actually made of, of wrought iron fence. So they could have seen out that would, air would have been going through. They were open to the uh, elements, open to the, the air above. They entered through one of these triangles into the center and then were then distributed one person per triangular exercise yard. And then on the order of start walking, they walked up and down the middle of these exercise yards for an hour and they would have had to keep walking or they would have had to have a really good reason not to. And then they were back in their cell for another 23 hours. Right, so it keeps the prisoners in solitary still. Yep. You're given fresh air, but you're essentially moving from one cell into another cell, being kept away from everyone else. On some level, it's mind games again, but I, I think that gets back to you're doing penance. You're, mm. you're by yourself. You think about what you've done. Mm, exactly. And, and I think we've got to be really careful about looking and judging this uh, philosophy or this penology from a modern attitude. This is actually, at the time, was seen as a very enlightened and forward-thinking way of, of dealing with crime and punishment. The design of the airing yards is called a panopticon, and the name literally describes the function of it, to observe all. So to get a visual on this, honestly, imagine a trivial pursuit token. The guards tower in the centre, and each prisoner has their own separate segment of the trivial pursuit, so they're a colour. This design was the brainchild of English philosopher Jeremy Bentham, and for its time, from the perspective of the guards, it was seen as a great way to save labour, watching all the inmates with a single guard. Bentham went beyond this. He said it could be used in hospitals and schools and sanatoriums, daycares and asylums. But chiefly, he thought, prisons. Are we able to carefully go onto the dick? Just watch your step here with the, the wires. Yep. You would come in, sometimes through the, around the outside. You can still see we've got some of the brick paving on the outside and the drainage and so you're stepping over the outside foundation and you're now in the triangle where these guys for one hour a day would have had their silent separate exercise so a guard's watching from the center up above mm -hmm. so he gets a view of every prisoner who is in their own little segregated trivial pursuit token exactly. and the outside of it is open air so bars did you say yeah so wrought iron gate or wrought iron fence, I should say. And the crucial thing about the design of the, of the central tower was that the, the observation windows, one for each of these uh, exercise triangles, yards, was quite a narrow window. 
And part of that reason was that the prisoner didn't know whether they were being observed at any one time. So what it meant was that compliance could be achieved by using only one man in that tower. And it's called a panopticon, going back to Bentham's idea of see all, this panopticon style um, use of, uh, of architecture to be efficient use of labour force. But also there's a, a mental play here that the prisoners were never sure whether they were being observed or not. So they were just compliant anyway. But these buildings were removed. This one particularly was removed before 1921. Its partner on the eastern side of B Division went before the Second World War. And the one in A Division, very well preserved remains, were still um, standing, if not operational, into the 1950s. So how much area is this here? How much space was a prisoner given to stroll around in the fresh air? I'd say it looks about six or seven metres long, uh, obviously going narrower towards the tower, and then at the widest point, probably about four and a half metres wide. So essentially they're walking up and down six or seven metres back and forward for an hour. So how tall would these walls have been when they were standing? Probably twice head height. Was it an open roof that you had at the top? Yeah, so just walls, yeah. capped walls. But really for a prisoner that's in solitary confinement 23 hours a day, this would have been their favourite structure in the prison. Well, it's a beautiful day today, isn't it? I oh, mean, it's, we, it's lovely today. It's, it's nice to be out here now. And I think you're right. I think it would have been relished, particularly by the, uh, the, the hardened lags, the guys who've been here for a long time. I don't think they would have got too much out of it in terms of uh, comfort. Uh, yeah, as, as far as the most valued hour of your day, this would be pretty grim. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but it, uh, you've got to admit that it, looking around now at this um, foundation, one, I, in my 20-odd years, I've never dug anything quite like it, so it's a very unique-looking structure. But its value is also that it has this ability to draw in the non-archaeologists, the non-historians, and it has an ability to tell this story, which a lot of archaeological sites don't have. That's archaeologist Adam Ford, and you can follow him on Twitter. He's at AdamFord69. You've been listening to the history podcast Tempest, and a version of this also aired on ABC Radio National program By Design. Now, this podcast is brought to you by the lovely people at the Trendle Research Centre at La Trobe University, which aims to promote research in the area of Mediterranean studies. So I asked their director, Julian Shepard, how the ancient Greeks dealt with criminals. You think things were harsh at Pentridge Prison? Well, they had nothing on the ancient Greeks. Socrates, right at the beginning of the 4th century BC, was convicted of impiety, not believing in the proper gods. His form of capital punishment was enforced suicide. And he was kept in the state prison in Athens. What was found in this structure were a number of small little pottery drinking cups about the size of shot glasses. And these might relate to the kind of punishment that was applied to Socrates, which was where he was forced to drink the pharmacon or the drug, but we think was probably hemlock, and that was what killed him. Julian Shepherd, and you can find out more about the Trendle Centre at latrobe.edu.au forward slash trendle. If you'd like to find out more about sponsoring this podcast or panopticons in general, then visit the website tempestpodcast.com. Please subscribe on iTunes or SoundCloud, leave a review there, and maybe tell your friends about it. Track us down on Facebook, send me an encouraging tweet, I'm at Nightlight Guy, and listen out for the next episode of Tempest. I'm Matt Smith, you've been fantastic, and thanks for listening. <laughs>